Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In Yoruba tradition, the oriki is something that's really important in that ori is head in Yoruba and then key is to greet. So it's ultimately greeting your head, greeting your fate, greeting your destiny, greeting your personhood. It's an affirmation to your spirit. It's a hype mantra. And oftentimes you get one when you're born and it is said and, and saying at moments where you need to be reminded of your greatness and special ceremonies, so birthdays, weddings, and oftentimes funerals. And I think about the, just the representation of this thing that exists purely to make you feel good about who and whose you are. And I mean, I think the Black diaspora has it in all these different forms, you know, in hip hop, when when Jay-Z's calling himself Hove, that's him gassing himself up. You know, in Christianity, when we talk about King of Kings, Lords of Lords, Alpha and Omega, that's a form of no Riki. So I wanted to talk about it in this book because to really present us with something that will gas us up in a world that's often trying to tear us down, it's almost like a blanket. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Lovey, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about your book by way of your publisher. And anybody who has a book with a title Professional Troublemaker, I thought, yeah, this is somebody I definitely want to have a conversation with because this sounds like somebody who I would get along with very well. Um, but before we get into the content of the book, I want to ask you what I think is a very relevant question given what I know about your story. And that is where in the world did you grow up and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Yes. Um, I grew up in Nigeria. I think um, that is everything about how I, how my career unfolded and how, who I am today, because everything we do is cultural, you mm -hmm. know, being born and raised in Nigeria. Um, there's a different type of bravado that we have as a people because we have to, to soar in a country full of, you know, 
full of people who have this audacity in spite of their circumstances. Mm -hmm. So by the time I came to the United States, I'd basically been who I was going to be for nine years. And um, language, humor, oftentimes our perspective is cultural. And the way I write is very much um, reminiscent of the fact that I am Nigerian, born and raised. You know, there are certain times when I'm thinking I'm I'm bilingual, for example, I'm I can speak Yoruba. So certain Mm -hmm. ways that Yoruba unfolds can show up in my writing because it's very metaphorical language. So I am very descriptive. Mm -hmm. Right. Like so I think that has really been a big part of my career because people say I have a singular voice and it's because of my culture. Mm. You mentioned audacity in spite of circumstances. Expand on that for me. What are the circumstances? Because I think that, you know, for most of us, when we see African countries, we only see what we see through the lens of media, which I think portrays most of these countries inaccurately. Like, for example, I had numerous Ethiopian cab drivers who have told me that, like, what you see on TV is not an accurate representation. It's a beautiful country. You don't actually see that side of it because of the way the American media portrays it. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a problem with any anywhere in uh anywhere on the continent is that mm. Africa's portrayed as this downtrodden place. But I think it's really important to also um, go beyond that description. You know, Nigeria is a country full of beautiful people who are resilient, who are very collective. We care about each other. And, um, you know, the other dichotomy is, yeah, Nigeria has a big population that's struggling, that, you know, is living in abject poverty so all of those things is a full picture, just like how every other country has the same st- sort of story, the soaring mm-hmm. and the struggles. Yeah. So uh, growing up for you, it, what was the, the cultural narrative about making your way in the world? Because just based on what I read about your story about lying to your mother uh, about pre-med, I was like, huh, I'm like you must have a lot in common with Indians. Oh, absolutely. Nigerians have a lot in common with Indians. Um I often say that Nigerians are the Indians of Africa and the Indians are the Nigerians <laughs> of Asia. We yeah. have a lot in common in how we, you know, operate in this insistence of winning in spite of where we came from. Mm-hmm. We are often, you know, given the expectation of being doctors, lawyers by our parents. It's absolutely parallel for both um, yeah. places. I have a, one of my best friends um, is Indian and I often laugh. And I'm like, we're basically cousins. <laughs> I'm like, we're cousins. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you know, growing up, I was expected to be a doctor because I was smart. I've been mm-hmm. bookish since I was little. So I always heard the you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a professor language sent to me. And um, that's why it became my dream. Well, and also because I've always wanted to help people. You know, I was like, I want to help people when I grow up. So doctor is an easy way to do it. Mm-hmm. And also like growing up, you know, unlike Gen Z, the things that were considered our possibilities were more narrow where now Gen Z has all sorts of options of what it looks like to help the world. We had kind of these boxes because Mm -hmm. yeah, back then the internet was not real, you know? So I think all of that adds to the fact that, yeah, all of us, uh, there, there are so many failed doctors out here. I'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, I, I'm, you know, one of, we always jokingly say one of my friends in high school told me that his mom said to him, if you want me to go to my grave in peace, you'll become a doctor. And he didn't. And, you know, fortunately, my sister met our family quota. So, you know, my mom is, is very happy about that because apparently that was <laughs> not going to happen with me. Oh, my gosh. But you know what? I think uh, we have one doctor in our family, by the way. So I was like, well, she can handle that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I just think it's a gift for this new generation, especially to not have necessarily those sorts of expectations on them mm-hmm. in that they can truly figure out what they want to do outside of those three things, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Yeah. You know, so one of the things you write about earlier in the book is your grandmother. And you say that my grandmother was the chair lady of the board of directors of Team No Chill Enterprises. As an elder Nigerian stateswoman, she was the epitome of the giver of no dams. She was too old to be checked. She knew how to take up space she was given. And in the time she wasn't given space, she took it. She did all of this with a smile and charm that made her magnetic. She wasn't rude, but she was direct. And I guess that, that stood out to me because I, I wondered, you know, kind of what influence she had on you because it, it sounded like clearly, you know, based on that sentence, she had a huge impact on your thinking. Yeah, my grandmother was, I mean, who I really was watching. I didn't realize how much I was picking up what she was dropping, you know, how much I was picking up, how she was moving through the world. She was just delightful about life and did not shrink, even in rooms where you might expect her to. You know, my grandmother kind of embodied the idea of deep confidence, unmoved by whatever room she was in. She would be that person no matter what. And people loved her for it. And she actually showed me really what what it meant to be authentic to you while also honoring your community, people you love, um, and not bending yourself until you break. You know, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times women are told whether implicitly or explicitly that we have to sacrifice ourselves for everybody else's needs, everybody else's happiness. And she showed me in her life, showed me that that's not true, that we can still be loved deeply while still honoring ourselves. Yeah. Wow. So you were nine years old when you moved to the United States, if I remember correctly. And that's uh, enough of a formative age where your culture from Nigeria is pretty embedded. Because, you know, for somebody like me, I was born in India, but I've never lived in India. I mean, I've lived outside of India my entire life. And yes, I've transitioned from one country to another, but they were all westernized countries. You know, it was like Canada to Texas, which is like another country to California. And so I wonder when you first came here, uh, what were the things that shocked you? Like, what was the culture shock that you experienced? What did you find odd? What did you find surprising? Uh, and, and, you know, how does that contrast to what you experienced in Nigeria growing up? Yeah, you know, major culture shock coming from Nigeria to Chicago, where it's cold, where everybody doesn't look like me, where I have to learn a brand new way of how people move around. And being a kid who had an accent, it it instantly othered me. You know, for the first time in my life, I felt different. You know, people couldn't pronounce my name. My accent stood out. My food was strange. And the gift of it all is that kids adapt relatively quickly. So I kind of listened to my classmates and I was like, I can sound like that. 
Because <laughs> at nine, you don't want to be different. At nine, you don't want to stand out. You want to fit in and be like the other kids. So I basically learned very quickly, like, okay, in order to do that, I'm going to have to not sound so different. I'm going to have to um, use a name that they can pronounce easier than my regular name. Um, I'm going to have to possibly bring different food. But what's interesting about my food is I was so insistent on my food that even though the kids were like, what's that jollof? Like, what's that thing you're eating? I was like, jollof rice. And they were like, that's weird. I remember bringing like a sandwich to school and halfway through class, like probably around two, maybe around one, I was like, I'm hungry again. (laughs) So I started bringing back my food. So the culture shock, I still maintained a deep sense of self. I still Mm. went home and ate what I ate. I still went home and was called the same thing. Um, So yeah, the culture shock was real, but I was still me. Yeah. You know, later on in the book, and the reason I'm going in this order is because it makes more sense in in the context of our conversation. You mentioned that you were raised by a single mother and say that she's always been one of your prime motivations to soar in this world. What is the impact of not having your father in your life been uh, in terms of, you know, sort of both your relationship with your mother and also just how you've gone about your life? Because for some people, I feel like that empowers them. And for others, it becomes this incredibly, you know, traumatizing limitation. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, I think for me, it's empowered me because I've watched my mom build this life for us out of oftentimes nothing. And it's inspired me because I'm endlessly impressed by how women make gold out of ashes and it's I think it's pushed me to also be successful because I've wanted to make sure that I was that I was able to kind of pay her back in a way um, just by making sure that her sacrifices were not in vain. So that's yeah. been amazing in terms of pushing me for better. Mm. Well, let's get into sort of the core concepts of the book. One of the things that you open by saying is that we're afraid of who we are in all our glory and grit. We're constantly searching for that person or forgetting that person or repressing that person instead of standing strong in who that person is. <clears throat> and then you go on to talk about this uh, concept called Oriki. Can you explain what Oriki is and how it relates to that idea of you know becoming who we are fully and, and one, why we even do that in the first place? Yeah, you know, in Yoruba tradition, the oriki is something that's really important in that ori is head in Yoruba and then key is to greet. So it's ultimately greeting your head, greeting your fate, greeting your destiny, greeting your personhood. It's an affirmation to your spirit. It's a hype mantra. And oftentimes you get one when you're born and it is said and, and sang at moments where you need to be reminded of your greatness and special ceremonies, so birthdays, weddings, and oftentimes funerals. And I think about the, just the representation of this thing that exists purely to make you feel good about who and whose you are. And I mean, I think the Black diaspora has it in all these different forms, you know, in hip hop, when, when Jay-Z's calling himself Hove, that's him gassing himself up. You know, in Christianity, when we talk about King of Kings, Lords of Lords, Alpha and Omega, that's a form of no Riki. So I wanted to talk about it in this book because to really present us with something that will gas us up in a world that's often trying to tear us down, it's almost like a blanket. Yeah. So you know, I've had a, a lot of African-American guests here, but you're kind of a, a blend of both African and African-American because you actually grew up in Africa for a part of your life. And then here, I mm -hmm. wonder, what did your mother teach you about what it means to be black in America? 
my mom didn't teach me anything about what it means to be black in America, because by the time we came to the U.S., even she didn't necessarily know, you know, in growing up in Nigeria, for us being black is the default. So we didn't have to define that version of ourselves till we got here. I don't think my mom taught me much about being black in America. What I learned, I learned from experience. I learned in school. Yeah. And she was also trying to figure it out herself. So I mean, what did you learn growing up? Because I think it's it's one thing for us to listen to people talk about it, to, you know, read books about it. Because I, I still remember my roommate reading the Robin D'Angelo book and, you know, he's a white guy. And he was like, wow. I was like, yeah, dude, of course you're not aware of your race because you're white. It's like water to a fish. Um, I being Indian, you know, it's something I'm much more probably aware of than he was. Um, so I, I wonder kind of, you know, what, what did, what did you, you know, what did you learn and what do you want people to know, I guess, is really what I'm, I'm trying to get at. I mean, we learn pretty quickly. Being black in America shows up in different ways in how people deal with you. Again, like it was completely different for me in that I grew up in a place where everybody looked like me. So, yeah, I learned pretty quickly. And I think, you know, black Americans are some of the most resilient people in the world. The 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 fight against white supremacy, the constant winning in spite of the fact that there's a whole system that's built to ensure that you don't succeed. I am endlessly um, inspired by it. And I think, you know, when I was in college, I took a lot of um, African-American studies courses to also learn the history of um Black people in America, the struggles, the triumphs, the the nuances. I took a lot of courses to also really educate myself in the fact that, again, like a lot of times two-year-olds here already know that they're Black specifically and they can call that out. And um, they know about the history of the Middle Passage. I wasn't taught that in Nigeria because we were learning about the uh, Biafran War. So, I mean, I think one of the ways I identify myself first and foremost, even beyond Nigerian, is just Black, because it's a label that I'm proud to carry. Our history comes with so much triumph over tribulations that there is no reason to not be so proud. So, yeah. Mm, wow. Let's get into this whole idea of a professional troublemaker, because you say a professional trouble, troublemaker is someone who critiques the world, the shoddy systems and the people who refuse to do better. While a professional troublemaker isn't someone who manufactures chaos or crisis, they do understand that chaos can come from being honest and authentic and going against the tide. Because in a world that insists on our cooperation, even the face of perpetual turmoil not standing for it makes you a rebel. Professional troublemakers deal with it because they have a cause. And, you know, that resonated with me so much because I'm like, yeah, that would be me. Um, especially my parents would be like, you are more than a professional troublemaker. You're a personal troublemaker. Uh, but where did that entire idea come from? Like, what was the foundation of, of sort of phrasing it this way? Um, I'm not sure, but I just know it fit. I can't remember when I started using it, but I know my TED talk. It's actually how I started my TED talk, which was almost five years ago. I think, yeah, the idea of making trouble in this world sometimes scares people. And um, they think about, you know, 
I don't want to do that. I don't want to ruffle feathers, but I'm, I'm like, for, we live in a deeply unjust world. So <clears throat> to be somebody who is justice minded, who is trying to be a part of the larger change, it's gonna, it's gonna make trouble. You know, I think about the late great John Lewis who talked about let's always be ready to make necessary good trouble. And it is just one of those things that we have to start reclaiming. We have to start being kind of straightforward about, like, I don't want to hide the fact that I'm going to make trouble in the room. You know, if a, if an idea is presented that I don't think is thoughtful, I'm going to speak up about it and it might make the room uncomfortable for a little bit, but it is absolutely worthwhile because I want to always be able to justify my role in any room that I'm in. So I think it's one of those things where we just have to start accepting it now. Yeah. Why is it that there are so many people who don't speak up and just keep quiet? And how do they overcome that? I think because, yeah, I think it's because we've been told that harmony is more important than justice, that discomfort is painful. So we will do our best to not rock the boat in the room. Instead, we're sitting there accepting you know, shoddy behavior, shoddy, shoddy ideas. And we're letting people off the hook because we're thinking, ah, you know what? It's not my, it's not my job to do or somebody else will handle it. Or I just don't want to get in the weeds of it all. But I think when we are at the table, the literal table, the things that happen there are our responsibility. So when we are afraid of, whether it's afraid of rejection, whether it's afraid of who's going to say what to us, who we're going to offend, what we're doing is shirking our responsibility. We're saying, I am giving up what is my job in this space. So I'm always wondering, like, when we are there and we're afraid of all these movements, we should probably ask ourselves if our silence will convict us. I think when we're so afraid of speaking up in that room and we don't do it, we should consider thinking about, okay, if I walk out this room and somebody asks, oh, you were there, did you say anything? And you say, no, will you be proud of that answer? Yeah. Will you be proud of your inaction? You know, there's one thing that I grabbed from your book that really stood out to me as well. You say by being here on this earth, you've done enough. And the reason I think that stood out to me is because people who listen to this podcast are probably thinking, yeah, she's a TED speaker. She's a New York Times bestselling author. And I know this because I had a listener who emailed me once and said, I have to stop listening to the show because your guests are making me feel worse about my life. And I said, I can relate. Mm. Imagine what my reality is on a daily basis. Like I have the most, you know, ridiculous role models for um, my basis for, you know, what success looks like. And I had a mentor told me, he's like, you got to realize the people you talk to are outliers. And it took me a long time. And it's still, I think, a struggle for me to basically, you know, say, okay, I, you know, I'm enough. Like there are times when I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely not on the level that my guests are. And, and I forget. I'm like, yeah, but they can't do what I do. <laughs> Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm, I'm fascinated by the person who says, I have to start I have to start, um, I have to stop listening to you because your guests are making me feel bad. What's interesting is, because I have a podcast too, and I have the type of guests you have. Mm -hmm. And typically when people listen, people are often like, oh my goodness, this really helped. What I always tell people about folks like us who get any sort of prominence or are put on some type of pedestal. Yeah. is that ultimately 
most of us, especially those of us who are not straight white men, we are ordinary people who at the beginning of our lives, we're not in extraordinary circumstances. We were not the ones who had the trust funds. We were not the ones who had, you know, the dad who owned a big old company and just gave us a job. A lot of us are people who are perfectly ordinary, who have committed to doing the same thing over and over again and have found ourselves successful because of it. So I'm actually inspired by the people who, when I hear their story, because I always ask the question of like, what did you want to be when you grow up? Because I want to compare it to who they are now. Like I used to, I was supposed to be a doctor, yeah. but then I'm now this person who does have a TED talk, who does have best-selling books. But I always want to let people know, like I had to build this life. Mm-hmm. Like this wasn't from any, and it's not to have somebody else feeling bad. What I hope people take from my story is that I'm a possibility model. Yeah. So if I can actually accomplish some of my wildest dreams or some of the things that I didn't even have as dreams because they just felt too big to even dream about. And I came from a background where I had to work. I haven't, I haven't ever been somebody who just had a foregone conclusion that like my life was going to be successful. Like my goal, my hope is that somebody hears this and says, okay, it's possible for me in some form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is the the thing that I aim for with every person I interview is to showcase realistic models of possibility that, you know, people mm-hmm. can see themselves in the stories. And I, I know exactly what you mean. I, my old mentor used to say something to me that just came to mind when you were telling that story. And he would say your temporary circumstances are not your permanent reality. And yes. I mean, to the point where I was like, I need to get that tattooed on my arm. <laughs> Uh, because it was such an important reminder of, of exactly what you're talking about. So something that you say, as you kind of segue into another commercial book that I want to really talk about is you say, when you're tempted to believe someone's tainted version of you or believe their projection of who they think you are, reread your mission statement, remind yourself of who the hell you are before trying to remind anyone else. And Mm -hmm. it's funnier because I think Everybody has, you know, we're talking about being put on pedestals, right? People have a projection of probably who you are based on what they see, Mm -hmm. you know, online, seeing your TED Talks, you know, seeing the internet. And then they have a projection of, you know, who you are based on reading your books. And I know it's the same thing with me. And I always have to tell people, it's like, by the way, I was like, you're seeing me in my limelight. Me, normal day to day is a PR crisis in the making. Um, yes. so trust me, I'm not exactly what you think I am. Like, you know, I, like when people read my books that, you know, expect Tony Robbins, I was like, no, you're going to get me swearing unfiltered pissed, And I will yes. say things that are incredibly offensive and, you know, um, politically incorrect. And so if you have this perception of who I am based on, you know, the few moments in the spotlight, they're wildly inaccurate. Absolutely. Again, like we are regular people who just happen to get some sort of visibility. I always tell people, listen, do not put me on any pedestals because I don't belong there. I will disappoint Mm. you over and over again. And (laughs) that is not like I will do it. Just give. And the reason why pedestals are a trap is because pedestals remove your humanity pedestals make it seem as if you have it all together. I do not. I'm the first to let people know I ain't got it all together. I do not have it together at all. 
And the thought of that pressure is, is it's terrible. It's, it's so big because you then have to live up to this expectation. You know, mm-hmm. human beings don't belong on pedestals. Those are for statues. <laughs> so don't have me on there at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get into this idea of too much. Uh, you say to be too something is to do or be something to a level that folks find to be uncouth. It's to be different. And you know, this just reminds me of conversations I've had with my mom. When she's like, you're too unfiltered. She's like, don't you think you should develop some? I'm like, I'm your son and I'm 40 something years old. If it hasn't happened by now, maybe you should give up on that. <laughs> facts only facts yeah. only that's a wrap yeah i mean it, 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 i'm like where do you think this comes from you know <laughs> so the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree and i just you know it, it's funny because i think that you know that is something that really when people are told they're too much of something you know it, one example despite the fact that i literally make a living listening to people and i'm aware of this people are like you talk too much and i'm like yeah, that's because I spend my entire day listening to people. But here's the thing, though. The thing that you are too much of is now the thing that's allowing you to serve the world in such a specific way. You know, the <clears throat> the idea of too much, like you are too something, has been used to weaponize this for a long time. And a lot of us who were called too mouthy or we talked too much when we were little, well, we're able to now serve the world with our words and, and impact people in a real tangible way. I think oftentimes when we're called too much or too something and we hide it, what we're doing is we're hiding our superpower for somebody else's whims, whatever fickle thing they want to say to us that day. Mm -hmm. And um, that superpower can be used in the service of you and others as opposed to dug deep and buried. There's so many people who have been told that they're too much who now are too little and can't get back to who they used to be. And I think that is unfortunate. We spend so much time telling little kids that they're too something, but how about if you actually harness whatever that thing is and help them channel it to, to something productive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is another thing that stood out to me when we're talking about this idea of too much. You say, do not let people make you feel bad for being successful and for being you and being amazing and for being accomplished. If people get upset at you for announcing something you did, those are not your people. And I think that the reason this really stood out to me is as you know, unmistakable creative grew and as I you know accomplished certain things, I lost friends in the process. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's happened to you. It were, you has know, definitely happened. I, and I, I realized I was like, okay, you know, the, the reality is in some ways I've outgrown these people and for my own personal growth, you know, they, whether they wanted to come along for it or not was their choice. And, you know, when they basically decided that they didn't want to be part of it, I, I outgrew them and it took me a long time to realize that. And it's still a thing that I, I struggle with to know that, you know, I burn bridges with people that I'm never going to be able to rebuild. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a rite of passage at this point. Um, it's a rite of passage to lose people along the way, because here's one of the things that will happen is that oftentimes people will see your success and project their own failures on it. They'll see it as a mirror of their failures. And oftentimes there's nothing you can do about it because it's not actually about you. It's about what you represent. It's about their unrealized dreams, their unfulfilled potential and then they see you soaring and they take offense to it 
I've absolutely experienced it. And my only way of dealing with it is just keep doing what I was doing and mm-hmm. understanding that people are just going to have to stay mad because I'm going to keep soaring. I'm going to keep living in my purpose. I'm going to keep, you know, creating the life that I want to live. I'm going to keep having opportunities that will blow their minds. My job is not to shrink because somebody is offended by my wins. My job mm-hmm. is to continue to soar and continue to like embody who I say I am and the purpose that I have. Yeah. Let's talk a, a bit about imposter syndrome uh, because it's funny that this is one of those things that I feel like traps so many people. And I think they have, in my mind, this mistaken belief that people who accomplish big things don't at all feel like imposters. And I'm like, go read one of Seth Godin's books. He literally says in a sentence, I feel like an imposter every day. And I don't know if you've ever felt that, but like, I remember, you know, I got a book deal with Penguin Portfolio and, you know, my book wasn't as successful. And I'm like, you know, here's the rest of the authors, the imprint are like Ryan Holiday, Seth Godin, Simon Sinek. And I honestly, at moments, I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? This had to have been a mistake. And I, you know, I'd always joke that I'm the redheaded stepchild of Penguin. Um, <laughs> but I wonder, have you felt that in any way at all in, in your own career? You know, I mean, New York Times bestseller, TED Talk, and you've been on Oprah. Like, do you ever feel that? Like, what the hell am I doing here? Absolutely. I think imposter syndrome stays with us, especially those of us who are really bent on being actually good at what we do. We're constantly wondering, am I actually good at this? Am I doing the thing that I said I was going to do? Am I offering the value that I said I was going to offer? And I think for me, I've used it as a driving force. You know, I've used it um, to push me forward, to make sure that I don't, that I don't think, you know what, I've learned everything I need to learn or I have nothing new to, to be better at. It constantly sharpens me. That imposter syndrome for me, I think is actually why I, um, why I wrote Professional Troublemaker in the way I wrote it. it was I put my vulnerable moments of like actually failing in there. I put my, I talked about losing friends in there because I think it's important to also humanize ourselves as we are the people who are considered some of the guides, you know, mm-hmm. letting people know that we don't have it all together, that we do have imposter syndrome, that feeling like you're wearing a, a title that you have not earned is actually uh, normal I think it will help everybody out to know that we're all feeling this. It's not just you. Yeah. Well, I mean, hence the reason I, you know, usually when I teach something, I'm like, let me premise this by saying that you should consider the possibility that everything I'm telling you is bullshit because it might be for you. Mm. And, uh, you know, literally the the book I'm working on at, at the moment, which I'm going to self-publish is titled Everybody is Full of Shit, Including Me. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about this idea of boundaries and asking because I think that, you know, this stood out to me as well as somebody who literally I had a client who was one of my students tell me the other day who took my my course on, on note taking. You're a, you know, he basically <laughs> use a phrase that I won't use when it comes to charging. And he was somebody who had paid me for my work. And then he was like, and this, you know, we were doing a customer you know research interview. He's like, I'm going to send you a hundred bucks just for this. And it got me thinking, you know, that he was so right. And I, you know, I'd always been sort of aware of that. And you say our inability to ask for things comes from a lifetime of learning that to ask is often to be disappointed. It's a well-earned fear. And then you go on to talk about charging. So let's start with, you know, asking, and then we'll get into this idea of charging what you're worth. 
Yeah, we got to asking is everybody, a lot of people's wounds. Like people have a, uh, a really hard time asking for help. And I think it's because maybe in the past people have let them down or people have punished them for asking something. And I just think we all need to kind of push past it anyway. In spite of the wounds around asking, we have to do it for our own greater good because we're often just waiting for people, life to give us what we want. But if we're not asking, how do people know what we actually want so they can give it to us? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this idea of charging, you know, what you're really worth. Because you say we're so afraid of charging what we're really worth because we fear that people will walk away. I say good rinse to bad rubbish. People who want to pay us pickle juice for champagne work have to get used to hearing no. And, you know, it reminds me of uh, a story I heard Dan Kennedy tell in one of his, his seminars. He said, you know, routinely, one of the things he does is when he takes on a client, he makes a deal. He's like, I'm going to institute a 20, 200% across the board price increase. And being Dan Kennedy, he's also baked in that as a percentage of his commission because he's smart. And people are stunned when they actually start selling at a 200% higher price increase. So, you know, like, I'm mean, even to me, a 200% increase, just that's so out of my comfort zone. To, you know, if I had a course that I sell for $500, I'm like, wait a minute, that would be like a $10,000 course. Yeah, 200% increase, I don't think is one of those things that should go <laughs> yeah. across the board. You know, um, and I know we talk about like charging what you're worth. Uh, you know, a lot of this is not just arbitrary numbers either. You know, knowing what other people are making and then knowing what the industry standard is. I think the important part is that a lot of people on the margins are often underpaid in ways that have us behind the ball. Um, I don't want to be the person who is the least paid in the room because I just happen to be a black woman. Yeah. If my worth is valuable, which it is, if I am, I have the same credentials, same experience, I should be getting the same payment or sometimes more. So we just have to start getting used to asking for the number that is fair for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about boundaries, because I think you and I, it sounds like both come from cultures where boundaries are kind of, you know, loose. And, you know, it, it basically it, I, I can tell you this. This is one thing that I realized growing up was that I had no boundaries and I got punished for having them uh, pretty consistently particularly when it came to my mother. And I saw how that played out in my relationships later on in life. And, you know, you spend six months in therapy, you figure out which parents screwed you up and, you know, you don't blame them, but then you realize, okay, I'm repeating a lot of these patterns in my relationships. But, you know, you say many of us were not allowed to draw boundaries growing up, especially with family. That's me in a nutshell. Now, maybe it's a cultural thing, but I can tell you the, the concept of boundaries was non-existent. Yeah, I think boundaries are one of those things that's really hard for people because we've been told that boundaries make us selfish mm-hmm. or like we are somehow not doing our part as a member of whatever community we are in by not flailing ourselves for somebody else. And for me, it's been important to be somebody who's strongly boundary because I get annoyed easily. <laughs> you know, like I'm like, why do I have to? Do the thing you want me to do when it does not 
feel good or it actually is to my detriment. And I think it's important to start doing the boundaries thing because the longer we wait to tell people what we want, the more we're doing them and us a disservice. Mm -hmm. So whether it's family, whether it's friends, I am somebody who always wants to have people know what I want in terms of treatment. And I think about boundaries as, I think about boundaries as a gift because it means the people who know me, who love me, have a strong idea of the things that I love, the things that I don't love, and they can trust me to be honest with them when I don't love what they've done. And mm-hmm. that honesty is a gift. Yeah. You know, I think the the thing that trips people up about boundaries, I remember having a conversation with a friend when I was in India, uh, you know, shopping for my sister's wedding. And we were talking about this. And the first time that you communicate your boundaries and it doesn't go well, you're just like, shit, you know, you realize that you may have, you know, like lost somebody who was going to date you and change their mind because that, but, you know, and then I realized I was like, yeah, but why would you want to date that person anyways? Um, but that I think part. it's so uncomfortable the first time that happens. Absolutely. And I think it's because a lot of people are not used to boundaries. Sometimes boundaries, people will take you exerting your boundaries as a personal affront to them. Yeah. And that's because we're a society of people who have not used boundaries in the way we should. So people aren't used to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the way you sum this up, this is probably my, one of my favorite sentences in the book is remember your life is not a carnival and not everyone should get a ticket to it. I, I just, yes, that, indeed. I, that resonated with me so much. Absolutely. Um, so you go on now. You know, I mean, I think the, the you know what I like is that the way you kind of frame this is we started with sort of mindset, but I feel like a lot of people get stuck in the sort of vicious cycle of self improvement. It's like, hey, I'm improving myself. I'm reading all these books. I'm going to all these seminars, and I was like, yeah, but what have you done with any of what you've learned? Anything? And they get stuck there. And you actually, you know, say permission is one thing, execution is another. Once you know you got to get doper and better, now comes the part where the ground you stand on will be shaken up. So talk to me about this. Like, why do people kind of like, you know, stop? Like somebody, for example, could listen to your conversation with me, go out and buy your book, and then it's back to business as usual. I mean, the hope is that people actually do something with it. Yeah, I mean, that's the hope for all of us who who do this work, I'm sure. Like, I think it's so important for people to take action in what they actually want to accomplish. I write my books in hopes that people will close the pages and they instantly go do something new. Yeah. So why is it then that you have, you know, these people who just go from seminar to seminar, book to book, and yet they never do anything with that information? I mean, no one book, no one class can change your life unless you're actually ready to take action. I can read a million things, but if I don't actually put the recommendations into work, no matter how many things I read, nothing's going to change. So I think a lot of people just read and, you know, take the classes, but then they haven't figured out the next step in terms of actually doing the thing. And that's the problem. And that's the reason why some people, in spite of all they know, still don't get the results they get they have not put the action to it Mm. wow 
So let's um, finish kind of by talking about this idea of firing yourself, because I think that this is yet another one of those things where, you know, letting go of things that you are in control of is incredibly difficult to do, especially when, you know, you are the person who has been at the top, you know, of something and in charge of something for so long to put it in the hands of somebody else. The first few times I know it's terrifying. Like I slowly, one of the things that for me was editing. I edited the first 400 episodes of this show myself to, which to this day was a godsend because I knew that the things that it did for me were, it basically forced me to go back and listen to everything, which I found valuable. And I still do that. Um, But there were little things I realized it was like, you know, I can't have somebody else choose the teaser. I need to choose that because they're not going to hear what I hear. And bit by bit, I, I started to let that go. And fortunately I have the greatest audio engineer in the world now, and he's amazing. And if I forget something, he'll be like, all right, go with this. He'll know exactly what to pick. And he's never let me down. It's mind blowing. But that took a long time to get to that point where I'm like, okay, I trust you to basically run with this and do your thing. Yeah. I think, you know, trusting other people to not drop the balls that are important to you is in itself a master exercise. But I think we need to let go of that control a little bit more so that we can create, um, we can really live in our genius. You know, for me also, like building a team, that's been the toughest part is letting go of stuff and delegating and thinking I'm the only one that can do this one thing. Meanwhile, we all actually operate in templates. We might not understand it, but like our life has patterns, how we operate, how we tackle our day has a pattern, how we approach work has a pattern. So when you can figure out what that is, you can actually replicate more of yourself. And I think that's the best thing. Telling people how you think about something so they can also think about it in the same way is helpful as a leader. Mm. Um, So, uh, you know, I want to finish with uh, sort of an unrelated uh, area. You got married recently, right? Yes. Three years ago. Okay. Yeah. Because I I thought it was hilarious. You said, I've found that weddings are the event of the world where people will most test your boundaries. If you're not used to drawing lines, you might be not be ready to have a wedding. And I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds about right based on what I saw with my sister's wedding. Um, Is your husband also Nigerian? No. Okay. That's, that's why I wanted to ask this question. So this is something I'm always curious about when you have uh, people from two different cultures coming together. And that is, you know, when you think about you know, even having children or, or, you know, retaining culture and when you mix two different cultures together, because, you know, my sister is married to a Bengali guy, uh, you know, and we're South Indian. And I always wonder, I was like, okay, is this kid of theirs going to speak both our languages and, and what's going to be the first thing to go? And I'm convinced probably if I don't marry an Indian girl, the very first thing to go will be language. And so I wonder how you think about preserving and retaining culture when you marry somebody who's not of the same culture. I think culture is much harder to lose than we think. You know, there can be one parent that speaks the language that is important to them, to that child. You know, a lot of people who I know grew up bilingual because one parent was was one um, culture and another was another. So I think it's culture is actually not that easy to lose. We actually have to be completely inactive about it to lose it. Um, So, yeah, I think that's, I'm actually not worried about that as a as a point of tension because one person can literally speak language to this person. I know a friend who she's um she's black American. Actually, no, she's Jamaican and her husband's German. Their daughter's 
bilingual because her husband only speaks German to to the baby. And yeah, it's not not a problem. And I think kids are way more resilient than we give them credit for. So they can pick up things faster. So yeah, culture doesn't have to be lost when two people are from different places. Yeah. Well, so yeah, you've accomplished things that anybody listening to this probably would be you know, almost envious of. I mean, TED Talk, New York Times bestselling books. And I always wonder with people who've accomplished all these things that were on their list of dreams, has your definition of success evolved over time? And is it different from when you started? Um, I'm not sure what my definition of success was when I started, but I know for me, definition of success now is that I can choose to live life on my own terms. I can wake up every day and do something that I want to do. I can ignore the things that I don't want to do. I think that for me is success, being able to live life on my own terms. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really uh, amazing and eye-opening and thought-provoking as I expected it would be. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That makes something unmistakable? Makes somebody or something unmistakable. That? Yeah. What do you think uh, it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, what makes somebody unmistakable is that they are truly themselves in all ways in whatever room that they're in i think being able to maintain your authenticity your true self even in rooms where you might not know anybody and maybe in some where you know everybody or in a room where you're not sure or imposter syndrome's getting you whether it's professional whether it's personal that who you are remains consistent no matter who is around you. I think that makes you unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Yes, I am easy to find. I'm all over the internet as Lovey, L-U-V-V-I-E, is my username on all platforms. And... um I have my own uh, podcast called Professional Troublemaker and um, lovey.org is my website. I'm super easy to find. I'm everywhere and I'm excited to connect with more and more people. And my promise to the world is I'm going to keep making good trouble. Mm, amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.